This episode of Manage Smarter is presented by Sales Fuel Coach, our adaptive sales coaching featuring five-minute quick coaching personalized to each sales rep. Learn more about Sales Fuel Coach at salesfuel.com. Welcome to the Manage Smarter Podcast with hosts C. Lee Smith and Audrey Strong. We're glad you're here for discussions on new ways to manage smarter, hire, develop, and retain talent, improve results, and propel team performance to new heights. This is the Manage Smarter Podcast. Hey, everybody. Thank you, and welcome to the Manage Smarter Podcast. I'm Audrey Strong. I'm the Vice President of Communications at SalesFuel. And I'm C. Lee Smith, the President and CEO at SalesFuel. Tony Chapman is here joining us at the table. Good afternoon, Tony. How are you, sir? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Well, he is the president of Chapman Enterprises, author of the book, The Force Multiplier. Love the title. That, if you haven't picked it up on Amazon, it's a touchstone to inspire leaders to transform people and their personalities, important point, into high-performing teams that get the job done. Tony is a keynote speaker, everyone, a corporate relationship expert, a certified speaking professional, as we said, an author, and he is also part of the C-suite. Uh, as we are with this podcast, and you are a network advisor. Tony, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. And his office has a hell of a view, I have to say. <laughs> it's amazing. I mean, it's like a beautiful view of, uh, what, 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 what river was that? Outside? That's the East River. So I'm on uh, Manhattan on the in Midtown East. And so the view outside of my office and outside of my apartment is the river. I feel like I'm in Miami every time I wake up. Oh, it, it's, it's amazing. Well, it's like, it won't feel like Miami in a couple of months as we turn to winter here in the United States, but nonetheless, right. you know, I, I, I was really fascinated by, uh, you know, by a lot of, you know, what you, what you speak on and, and, and what you put out there. And I, there's one article I came across on your website and I love the title of it so much. Uh, because it says you're not hiring bad people, you're making bad people. What give give everybody here a, a, just a taste of what you're talking about there? Sure. So my theory is this: most people want to do a great job at work. In fact, I believe that's why people take bad performance evaluations so personally. And so th- there's this theory out there that you know I, I I'm having problems working with people. In fact, I'll, I'll share this quick story. I'm at a luncheon with a bunch of friends. I think this is very casual. And I'm talking to an HR manager. I ask her, how are things going at work? And she gives me the old, you know, we're having problems finding great people. And she gives me the da-da-da-da-da-da about that. And I just casually looked at her and I say, well, you know, the number one driver of employee engagement is the employee's direct relationship with their manager. Mm-hmm. And she goes, and she she almost was like my surrogate, just took over the conversation like, well, yeah, and blah, 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 blah. And I'm thinking, <laughs> you didn't make the link. See, the, the link is that if people aren't working well, we have to fix something within the leadership's skill set to make them work better because they come in as great people. And yet often, if we don't have people who are trained mm. at being great leaders, we can actually infect them with bad habits. So what I like about this topic, Audrey, is that we talk a lot about the manager's responsibilities to develop their people and, and, to, de- and to develop leaders, you know, and to make, and I always like yes. to say, you know, good managers uh, improve numbers, great managers improve people. But what I like about your take here, Tony, is that you're looking at it from a different angle where just like, you know, they start off as good people or whatever, and we're making them worse. Right. Well, potentially. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, you know, I I love what you just said about making good people. I think that's critical. So here's what happens. We can be effective in a situation or with a few people, 
and think that because we've done that, we've got it figured out, right? And now we can rule the world. And then we get different people or different situation and our amazing tactic doesn't work anymore. And instead of saying, wow, I've got to learn a new tactic, we say, I got bad people. And what, so what it really is, is it's an indicator that we need to grow and change and become even better managers, regardless of whether we're a good beginning, we can always get better. So what are the, the things that the managers are doing that suck the life out of the room and uh, demoralize people and, and, and you know, force them to not be at their very best? Sure. Well, let's start off with just not having a great attitude every day, right? I mean, just something as simple as that. We know that there's a thing called emotion contagion. It's exhausting so like, to work with somebody like that. Yeah. Oh, like, right. Like you ever get on a bus and you see someone and they smile at you and all of a sudden it just changes your mood, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. But then at the same time, you could be in a grocery line and it's a huge long line and someone's trying to suck you into their bad attitude. Oh, they yeah. just totally mess up your day. The problem is when that is who you walk in to see every day at work, right? Mm. Something as simple as, wow, I have to make sure that I'm doing a great job of checking my attitude. I'm always on. Like my mentor one time said, when I became a supervisor, he said, Tony, you just lost the luxury of having a bad day. And mm. that changed I love my that. That's a quotable right Is there. Is that unbelievable? Because yeah, I was like, right. I never thought of it as a luxury, but boom, right? So that's one thing you can do easily. Another thing is to not punish people for doing a good job. And here's what I mean. Hmm. We all have employees that have a higher capacity of work than others. And how do we reward them? More yeah, work. Stuff, work. To yeah. <laughs> stuff to do. All right. And at some point they go, they figure it out. So I was working at a manufacturing firm and they had a new employee and he came in and he's, you know, taking apart all these mechanical seals that they're working on. And his team leader walked over and said, Hey man, slow down. And I thought he was saying slow down because these were delicate pieces of equipment. He goes, look, the faster you get this done, the faster they're going to bring them in. So just slow down, pace yourself. There's no rush. And we can do that. And all of a sudden we're surprised that everyone begins to, you know, change according to how we set those expectations. If I'm going to reward you with more work, but nothing else, at some point you go, eh, it's probably not worth it. Why should I bust my tail for this? One of the, so some of the things I see on, on uh, you know, on your website, this is an interesting checklist, you know, and, and I, and I would like to challenge everybody that's listening right now is to think about, you know, if they've ever had a manager that exhibited some of these tendencies and how they made you feel micromanaging, competent people throwing temper tantrums. Oh my, uh, let's see, having an answer for everything, not giving specific direction, not giving specific direction and then being unhappy with the results. Oh, that's uh, a good one. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Keeping yeah. people in the doghouse. It's one thing to get into the Chateau Bow Wow, but it's like, that's another thing basically to, to hold a grudge and keep people there and, and, and have a bias against them. So that's, I, I, there's, there's some really good stuff here and I encourage everybody to go to the website, check it out. Thank you. I have a question about your philosophy on winners and losers. So you talk about, well, you know, we're kind of in this participation trophy culture right now. Right. Like you show up, you get a prize, but you're very specific about everybody needs to be a winner and the losers can kind of just, you know, self-deport or exit the organization. And we all have to be okay with that, but this might be a little bit controversial. I want you to talk about it. Well, sure. I, I, so my whole thing is like the title of my book is force multipliers, how to create teams where everyone wins. Right. Right. My, my idea is that for most leaders and self-included, especially when I was first starting, right? 
there are people that I managed well and people that I managed poorly. And the people that I managed poorly over time got less rewards, less other things. And there became this huge gap between the two. And what I had to learn was to get out of what I call the herd mentality. That's where I just treat everybody as this big group. And I had to learn what motivates each individual. So mm -hmm. how can, what can I do to invest into that person to make them a winner? I'm not going to reward them or give them an award for being substandard. But if one person's easier for me to manage, that's just because they're easier for me to manage. That doesn't necessarily make them better. So the people who are more difficult, it takes more work. But the vast majority of those people, I can still make them a winner and get more out of them than they would have before if I take the effort of really learning individually what I need to do to meet their needs. I like to look at it as that you can, you can, if you're going to have winners and losers, the losers shouldn't be in your company. The winner should be at the, comp the competing company. That's right. where you want, you want them to be yeah, the losers. Yeah, yeah. Want, yeah, yeah. exactly. You know, the whole goal is that you have a company full of winners. And mm -hmm. everybody, you know, now they may win at different levels, right? But right. everybody is like, man, I feel successful. And being successful breeds more work, more productivity, and more success. So other than asking people, what kind of Starbucks do you like? Or giving a Starbucks gift card of it, they love Starbucks or whatever, and the preferences and the favorites that some workplaces ask about, what are some of the other ways that you can work on a harder relationship like you just talked about to improve it? Uh, what are your top tips for that? Well, sure. First is figuring out why they're like that. Sometimes they're that way because of how the previous manager and the previous boss and everybody else has always treated them. So sometimes it's just giving someone a clean slate. Mm -hmm. Sometimes, yeah, physical rewards are great. Um, sometimes it's just an acknowledgement that you did a great job. Sometimes it's just the opposite. It's I messed up with you and I need to come and take responsibility and apologize. It's, it's amazing the power of an apology. Mm -hmm. And yet it's also amazing that the higher up someone gets in the organization, the greater fear they have of making an apology. And yet, you know, resolving those types of things is amazing. Uh, giving someone chances to do work that excites them. And that's going to be different for other people, right? Which really kind of creates, a, you know, I hate the buzzword synergy, but, you know, <laughs> You know, it was like, you I know, still synergy. love that word, Tony. I still love that word. I, I just hate that it was so overused, right? Like, yeah, I do too. Like in five years, we're going to feel the exact same way about the word disruption. Disruption, right? Oh, uh, yeah. So it's, you know, synergy was just that word. Awesome word, but just overused. But we create synergy by giving people chances to do things that they would not have had a chance to do otherwise. That's a great way to reward someone. So it, but individually, I mean, people know that it's work. And some people don't even want to be in the forefront, right? They, they want to just sit back and know that they contributed and that's all they need. So the, I, I think it, it comes back down though to just actually working with them as individuals and finding out what they need, what they like. And what's funny is people talk about what they like and what they hate and they make it very clear, very quickly. And if you just listen, people will tell you what to do to motivate them. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. All right. Unconscious bias. Shall we oh boy. talk about this? What is that? What is it? And what does our audience need to know about it? Okay. Um, unconscious bias is another overword used, overused word right now. Sorry about that. Um, unfortunately, but it's, it's everywhere, right? So unconscious bias really has to do with 
uh, if you took the brain and how it processes information, it has two basic thinking systems, right? One is slow and logical, and one is fast and intuitive, right? So unconscious biases, I moved to New York six years ago, upstate. Uh, turns out, even though I expected, because I was living in a basin of the Catskill Mountains, to be around wildlife, and I expected deer and even black bear, no one told me about rattlesnakes, right? Nobody oh. says, hey, rattlesnakes in New York. Awesome. So I'm in my backyard, raking leaves, and I hear my neighbor say something. I look up, and right at that moment, I feel something slither across my uh, left foot. No. And I'm wearing sandals, right? No. I, yeah. Double I look, no. Double Everyone no. is in their car right now going, eh. Yeah, ah! exactly. <laughs> so I look down. I'm like, ah. Now, you think I stopped and said, huh. I wonder what kind of snake that is. I should look to see if it's got a rat. Probably rattle. not. I see if it, before I knew what happened, I was on my deck like, what the, right? Yes. The, the key is before I knew it happened. And that's really where you start talking about unconscious bias. It's the responses, and it's often tied into emotions, right? It's intuition. It's feelings. And it happens before you can actually process what's going on. So you meet someone, and you get a feeling. That feeling may determine whether you trust them or not. That feeling may determine whether you believe they're credible or not. That feeling may determine whether you think that they're competent or not or whether they're attractive or not. You could get all these feelings and you don't realize what's happening, but those decisions, those, those moments start to affect how you make decisions about them, right? And so now, because you instantaneously felt, wow, I trust this person, I like this person, and a lot of that may be because they're like me, mm. that we have a bias towards them and we give them a preference that they have not yet earned. And that's the one that can come back to bite you fast, faster than, than yeah, actually having a negative unconscious bias towards somebody. Like it's the positive one where you, you, know, you kind of, I really want to believe that you're all you're cracked up to be, you purport to be and everything like that. So I'm going to, you know let that one slide or I'm going to let that excuse stand or something like that. Those are, in my experience, those have been the ones that come back to bite you the most. Oh, what do you think? Absolutely. And in fact, so I'll be honest with you, coming out of college, I had figured that out and learned how to utilize it during my interviews, right? So my first job interview, I'm interviewing, I'm talking to my, my boss and immediately I figured out he was a golfer. The entire mm. interview was about golf. The <laughs> next person I interviewed, found out he was in the cars. The entire interview turned into a talk about Corvette. And by the end, I got an offer before I walked out, and they knew nothing about me. They just liked me, mm -hmm. right? And, and there's a good example of that too, Tony. Before you came on, I was just telling telling audience like, "Oh, I'm really gonna like this guy." I was like, "I came into it with a positive attitude. I know I'm gonna like this guy." And it's like, and, and so far you've not disappointed me. Well, and by good. the way, oh, it's yeah, like yeah, I yeah. had an unconscious bias though in your favor. It's like I came into this where knowing I was gonna like this guy. Right. So now the problem happens when you start dealing with race, when you start dealing with uh, gender, and you start, you know, 58% uh, of CEOs are six foot or taller, 30% are six foot two or taller, that's only 3.9% of the general population. There is some type of bias that goes on when we meet people who are taller, we expect them to be better leaders. Uh, women who've had weight loss surgery, you know, if you put their before and after pictures on a resume, the before pictures, the ones that are heavier, score lower, when assessed by human resource professionals huh. on starting salary and leadership potential. And in fact, I'm teaching a federal, now you, you got to hear this, this is crazy, right? Okay. So I'm at a federal agency 
teaching to their law, teaching their law enforcement group. And I say, well, you know, a jury's more likely to convict an overweight woman than a thin woman. The head of law enforcement is sitting in front of me and he just reflexively says, well, everyone knows that. I'm like, whoa. Well, I didn't no, know no, that. No. Everyone <laughs> does not know that. <laughs> no. Wow. First of all, is that true? It's, <laughs> yeah, it's statistics. But that's his bias and he just blurted it out, yeah. right? No, well, it's, it's that he actually knew that that bias existed. Okay. Uh, because uh. statistically that's true, right? Wow. So understanding that these things happen or that, you know, the, the number one demographic most likely to die from heart-related disease is black females, okay? Mm -hmm. But the number one solution to it is for them to have female doctors because it's a known thing in the medical community that male doctors will often listen to black females complain about their symptoms and think they're being dramatic. And they'll discount them and they're far more like, they're 60% more likely to die than their white female counterparts. So, you know, now you take all that and you say, okay, in the workplace, who gets hired? Who gets promoted? Who do you assume is doing a better job? And all of this is happening. I shouldn't say all of it. A lot of it is happening at a, a space that's faster than our conscious decision making. And then once we make that decision, just like you said about me, man, I, I know I'm going to like this guy. Now we look for ways to make that true so that it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. So how do you feel about the, the, the role of assessments in all this because i like to use assessments then because it's data it's non-biased something like that to, to, to kind of be a, a check and balance against that unconscious bias how, how do you feel about that i love assessments i absolutely love them as long as you know how to use them so that they can tell you what you actually need be, for example if you use a personality assessment it's you're looking for a personality to fit a specific role within a specific team. And then you could target that individual and get them to fit. So I, I think assessments are phenomenal when properly used. Well, I mean, I, I think that we, we love assessments here. We may, may no <laughs> secret of that, but it's also kind of bulletproof in that it's, it's their own answers. They're the ones filling in the assessment. Um, my other question would be about unconscious bias is, related to hiring as well, is for our audience. So now that I understand what it is, Tony, you schooled us all in this. When I'm looking to hire, should I sit and think for a moment, like recognize and process what my reaction was to a particular candidate and recognize whatever my bias is and then be cognizant of that, as Lee said, um, in considering the whole picture. But take that as a prong as well. Yes, one of the things you should do is in the moment, stop. Okay. Okay. Why do I feel this way about this person? Okay. So recently I was at an event and I met this lady and she shook my hand and she had just come out of the bathroom. She even said, I'm sorry, I just come out of the bathroom. My hands are wet. And you should get <laughs> wet old handshake. Now here's the problem. The horizon program had actually done this whole uh, study as well as Yale. Well, actually I'll talk about the Yale program. Yale did the study in which they showed if you hold a warm cup of coffee in your hand and then shake someone's hand, they're going to have a more favorable view of you. There's actually something about the warmth of the handshake. I have so, never heard that. This is like my, I'm so entrenched in unconscious bias and neuroscience right and now. And if you smell like apple pie. Chocolate okay. <laughs> chip cookies, like a realtor. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Well, yeah. But there's something about the warmth of the handshake. There's a part of the brain huh. called the insular cortex that it, it, you take that warmth and you project it on the person, right? Oh. So you're, 
So they're more likely to want to hire you if you have a warm handshake. What if you have a cold not, handshake? Not sweaty. It's the, it's the exact opposite. So okay. The cold okay. makes you less want to. Like you can do the exact same thing instead of a handshake. Give them something warm to drink. And they're more likely to want to hire you, even if they don't drink it, if they just hold the cup in their hands. So it's interesting. Crazy. It's absolutely crazy, right? So now, going back, this woman shakes my hand, and I get this feeling, and I stop, and I said, wait a second, you know better. You know this is because she just said she came out of the bathroom. Give her a clean slate. But I had to tell myself that so I wouldn't just work on the emotion of that initial moment. How does a manager know what their own unconscious biases are, or biases, I should say? First, look at your team. What do they all have in common? Because oh, you, that makes sense. Probably all, it's probably already fulfilled itself in some way. For example, if you're introverted, you're more likely to hire an introvert. If you're data-driven, you're more likely to hire someone data-driven. Even if that's not what's best for the team, that's your comfort zone. So start with you know, that. I hire um, nerds. I hired yeah. nerds. Yeah, right, right, right. Yeah. <laughs> just, just don't let them be your, you know, all your salespeople, right? Or, <laughs> yeah. You can hire nerds for a certain thing. And look, nerds are ruling the world right now, and I love it. So I'm all good with that. But, you know, starting off with something as simple as what are the trends that I already see, okay? That, that's a huge thing. Um, who is like me? That's number two, right? So there's a thing called affinity bias. And basically, we're more likely to like someone who's like us. We're going to be more sympathetic to them, more empathetic towards them. So that's a big part of it. Third, what are the norms in society? The norms are white, male, Christian, heterosexual, U.S. born, right? You know, so we're more likely, regardless of your own demographic, to have that bias because that's what we see in TV, movies, advertisements. That's what's projected as the norm, and that's what programs our subconscious. So we're far more likely than to have those as our preference biases. Which so even if you're a black, fem a gay, female, whatever the case may be, where you still have that? Yeah. So for example, 75% of people have an unconscious preference of black or white people over black. Turns out 40% of black people have that same preference. 40% 40 have a preference of white over black. 40% have black over white. 20% are neutral because we're far more programmed by what we see and experience. So even though you may be in a neighborhood where you, you experience a number of things, the visceral experience of watching TV, going to movies, seeing commercials, that programs your brain in such a way that you, you equate that with being the narrative of how things should be. Well, it's TonyChapman.com and you're Tony Chapman on Twitter, and uh, you have the Tony Chapman experience, correct? And you speak. Yep. How yep. full is your dance card and people who want to reach out to you? How would you prefer that they ping you? It's pretty full. Uh, I'd say on my website, or you can hit me at speaker at TonyChapman.com. You know, go to my website, hit me on Facebook. Hit, if you find me, I'll respond. Mm -hmm. That's the key, right? You know, I, I just, yeah. I'm busy, but I got two kids in college, so I'm paying oh, tuition. So yeah, if you too. find me and you have money, you can even pay me in live chickens. I'll be there. Trust I, me. I'll find a way to respond. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> and for C-Suite Network Advisor as well, what's your, what are you doing with that? So uh, I actually spoke at the last C-Suite conference. I just did. I'm starting to try to do more videos with C-Suite. I think the That's articles great. are mm -hmm. good, but video is more important. And I'm debating on something similar to what you're doing possibly doing a podcast because I think, you know, having that 
more interaction with them uh, because it's such an amazing group that I really want to make sure that I'm uh, engaged with that audience. Well, yeah. if you're half as good as a host as you are as a guest or whatever, it's going to be a phenomenal success. And I really appreciate you taking the time to join us today, Tony. Thank you guys so much. I really appreciate you inviting me. It's great being here. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and recommend on iTunes, Overcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also get more great information at salesfuel.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.